title of today's sermon is Building and Battling, and it's taken from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Would you bow in prayer with me as we begin our time together in the Word? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come on this spring day and to be reminded of your goodness and your grace through creation, through the green grass, the growing flowers, and the new life that is coming. Help us, Lord, to prepare for the new life that you have for us in the coming age and when, when we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, we wait, we prepare, we learn, and we become more like him. May this time together this morning be a step in that direction, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. America is divided today by identity politics. The modus operandi of the left is to divide and conquer through class warfare. They divide us by color, sexual preference, political ideology, and religion. Anyone who doesn't share their definitions and values is then called names rather than debated. Respect for the individual is gone. Freedom of speech is waning. National politicians and celebrities are eroding the mutual respect that has always been in a well-functioning society. Those who disagree with their viewpoints are the enemy rather than a fellow American. I believe their intent is to diminish individuals and then to divide into these groups I've already mentioned. It wasn't so in biblical times. Then people didn't even have last names, let alone identities by politics, color, sexual preference, or religion. They were known by their first name. And oftentimes their father's first name was added for clarity. For example, in the scripture we read of Simon the Tanner, Demetrius the silversmith, Lydia, seller of purple. In other cases, the person was identified by the nature of their birth. Adam called his wife Eve, for she was the mother of the living. Moses received his name because he was drawn out of the waters of the Nile. Hannah named her son Samuel because God heard her prayer. And in the book of Acts, Joseph was known by his character because he was an encourager. He was called Barnabas. Then there is our own Lord. Jesus received his name from an angel who instructed his father, Joseph, that he will save his people from his sin. Solomon once said, the wisest and the richest man who ever lived, A good name is more desirable than great riches. So as we study our text this morning, we must bear in mind that one's identity is very important. Jesus self-identified as a Jew. He was identified by Matthew as a descendant of King David. He was in line to inherit the throne of David and was eligible to be the Messiah King. Jesus identified himself as such to his fellow Jews. And many saw in him that identity when they recognized his teaching and his miracles. And yet, the Jewish nation rejects him as their Christ. That rejection begins with his family, moves to his neighbors, and the whole religious establishment rejects him and his offer to be king. Last week we examined a portion of chapter 16 in which the religious leaders offered to test his identity, you'll recall, if he would only do for them a bigger and a better sign than before he could prove who he was. But Jesus refused to play the game. Instead, he chose to invest all of his time in the future in preparing his disciples for when he would no longer be with them. It's interesting to me that Matthew omits from his book an event that Mark includes at this very same moment in time. Mark records Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida while Matthew leaves that out. 
Mark uses this healing of the blind man at Bethsaida to epitomize the blindness of the nation of Israel to Jesus' identity, but that does not fit with Matthew's purposes in writing. He leaves that out because his purpose is to demonstrate the deficiency of the disciples' faith. Recall, they were of little faith. Matthew, as you know, was writing to the Jewish people. He was writing about a Jewish man who had the right Jewish credentials to be the Messiah. So we have a Jew writing fellow Jews in a Jewish context. We must understand the book in that manner, or we will fail to identify the identity of Jesus. We must see him in this book as the Messiah King, the one who was rejected by his own people the nation of Israel. On the map behind me, we can see that this is a turning point, a climax, a culmination in the narrative of the book of Matthew. The map behind us, behind me shows us that Jesus was taking his disciples straight north, 25 miles, to the pagan region of Caesarea Philippi, or Panius, if you will. Behave yourself. He leaves Bethsaida, and he goes 25 miles north past Caesarea Philippi to the base of Mount Hermon, which is where the Grotto of Panius is, before he returns back to Capernaum. 25 miles is a long walk. So, what was Jesus' purpose in taking his disciples deep into pagan territory? Now, some Bible students suggest that it was for Jesus just to get away on a retreat. A way to get away from the ever-present crush of the crowds. Others suggest that it was a mission to develop and teach his disciples. As you might know, Herod the Great Son ruled the district of Caesarea Philippi during the lifetime of Jesus. He and his father, Herod, had rebuilt many of the pagan temple sites in Panias, dedicating them to Roman gods or Greek gods that had once been towards Baal and other pagan gods in that region. This was an homage by Philip to the emperor. But to distinguish it from the Caesarea that lay on the coast of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean he added his name. So it became Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was located near the Grotto of Panias, as I showed you on the map, which is where the headwaters of the Jordan River is. That is, the melting snows gushed off of Mount Hermon through an opening in the grotto at Panias, and it turned into the Jordan River. It was an oasis-like place. It had long been associated with pagan worship especially the gods of Baal, Pan, and now the Greek and Roman ones. The grotto was believed to be a gateway to the underworld. This, was, this is illustrated for us by the carved idols in the rocks of Mount Hermon, the bedrock, the sides. These niches hold these figures that are no longer there, but you can see where they once were. Pan, being the god of nature, found a suitable resting place in this haven of natural waters, mountains, and lushness. Please watch the following video by way of introduction. In today's drive through history excursion, we turn our faces north and make the approximately 25-mile drive from the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, an ancient Roman city at the base of Mount Hermon in a region of Israel known as the Golan Heights. It's pretty much uphill all the way from the Sea of Galilee, which is almost 700 feet below sea level, to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 1,150 feet above sea level. The landscape changes as you go from dry and golden to more lush and green. Knowing Jesus and his disciples spent time here made this road trip all the more exciting to me. And I was again impressed with the amazing realization that I was very much following the footsteps of the most influential and consequential man who ever walked the earth. Well, I finally made it to the north of Israel, near Dan, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, this is a large archaeological site containing elaborate building projects by Herod Philip and Herod the Great's grandson, Agrippa II. Heard it's supposed to rain today. In addition to magnificent Roman structures, Caesarea Philippi is also known for banyas, a collection of springs, and pagan worship sites linked to the cult of Pan. Pan, also called the goat god, was the Greco-Roman god of nature, livestock, and hunting. All things related to wild times, party music, and of course, fertility. Pan was the crazy looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. The centerpiece of this ancient worship site is this huge cliff and grotto containing the remains of numerous altars, caves, temples, and courtyards. This whole area was teeming with Roman mythology and idolatry. It was right here where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, asked his disciples one profound question. Who do you say that I am? walked along the Jordan, passed the ancient gates of the city of Dan, and they passed then the city of Caesarea Philippi to go to the grotto of Panius, Banius in ancient times. Imagine for a moment, you're with Jesus as you're walking along that long trek, wondering why in the world you're going deeper into Gentile territory, and especially to this grotto where pagan deities our worship. Once there, you can't take your eyes off of the niches, the carved uh, images of the goat god, and so on and so forth. You see the Roman temples behind you in the distance when Jesus turns and asks you an important question, a very important question. Well, with that, would you turn with me now to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13. If you're using... The Pew Bible, you can find this text on page 976. In the video we saw, you could see the reenactment, the buildings, the shrines, the temples that are no longer there that once were to pagan gods. It was the center place of pagan worship in Israel. It was built to honor the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. And so it was there that a temple was built to him. So imagine you're there and you're, you're looking at these temples and all of these gods carved into the rock on Mount Hermon when you're standing there with the other disciples, mouths open wide, gaping at something you had never seen before, and Jesus turns and asks you, his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Here you are in the home of paganism, the place where pagan Gentiles would feel, feel completely at ease, but not so for Jews. And Jesus asks them for the pulse of the Jewish people. Who do the Jews say that I am? Now, Greek grammar helps us here a bit. It tells us that the word asked in Greek is written in the imperfect tense. Don't cloud over your eyes and fall asleep here. What that means is that Jesus repeatedly asked them this question again and again. We might even suggest that Jesus went to each one of the disciples and asked them the question, who do your fellow Jews think I am? This is the same question I've asked people today in conversation. Our missionary in Europe, Jeff Welch, who's originally from our congregation, asks this question of the lost in Europe all the time while standing on street corners. He will tell you the same thing that I will tell you from my experience. People always answer the same way about that question. People will identify Jesus as a good man, a great teacher, 
And maybe he was even a prophet. In fact, the religion Islam considers Jesus a prophet. Thousands of people in Jesus' day who heard him and saw his earthly ministry assumed that Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, a prophet, perhaps even the forerunner of the Messiah, but not, but not the Messiah himself. This assumption that a prophet would come before the Messiah would appear is deeply embedded within the Old Testament. We see that couched in their responses to this question of Jesus. Who do the Jewish people say that I am? Look with me at verse 14. They said, his disciples, some say you are John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus takes a public opinion, a poll about his identity here. And we learn that the people of Israel considered him to be a return of one of their past national heroes. The first name mentioned, of course, on the list is John the Baptizer. We know from our study in the book of Matthew that John preached the same exact message that Jesus preached. That is, the nation of Israel corporately needed to turn and embrace a change of mind about their behavior. They needed to return to a proper worship of Yahweh. Even Herod Antipas, as you will recall, thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the baptizer. Now, others believe that Jesus was the return of the prophet Elijah, who, like Jesus, was mighty in both prayer and in doing the miraculous. Most Jews were aware that the prophet Malachi had predicted that Elijah would return before the coming of the Messiah. So, when this question is asked of Jesus, uh, by Jesus of the disciples, many of them think of the passage from Malachi which says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. There it is. Before the day of the Lord ensues and brings a culmination of time, Elijah must return. So it was natural for them to think of Elijah in this case, while others thought of another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. He was an obvious choice because, like Jesus, he had been rejected by the generation in which he lived. And if it wasn't John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, it had to be another one of the prophets of old. Surely, it might have been along the likes of Isaiah, Daniel, or Zechariah that Jesus was like. Each of these suggestions were complementary to Jesus, and yet they did not fully, adequately identify who he really was. The Jews failed to correctly identify him as the Messiah King. Rather, they just viewed him, like many people today, as a man of great character and ability. Differing views abounded then, and uh, they do today. However, Jesus never claimed to be only a good man. Jesus never claimed to be just a great teacher, nor just another one of the prophets. He would have rejected each and every one of those titles. To the average Jew, Jesus was just one of those choices. Good, but not the best. Great, but not the greatest. A prophet, but not the prophet. This view condemned him with faint praise, if you will. If he was just another man, though it be great or good or even a prophet, he was a fraud, for he claimed to be equal with the Father. Isn't that how people identify him today? A great man or a fraud? The question is now that Jesus asks changes, not from what other people who they say that I am, but in verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples, 
But whom do you say that I am? As he's walking along in the grotto of Panius, you have to understand this, they're looking at the gods on the walls who the pagan Gentiles said were gods, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Now who do you say that I am? Am I just another one of the gods in the niches on the walls? Or am I God of God and very God? Please notice in this verse that Jesus doesn't ask them who they thought he was or even who they believed him to be. Rather, he asked them who they said he was. But who do you say that I am? You know, you can think in your head, you can believe in your heart, but it's what comes out of your mouth, the testimony of your mouth that really matters, is it not? Once again... The Greek grammar helps us understand the import of this question in Greek. He asks, who do you say that I am? In the Greek, the you is plural, and it's pushed all the way to the front of the Greek sentence for emphasis. You, you, who do you say I am? And that's a question that each one of us has to answer. Jesus is asking them and us, given what you know about me, how do you identify me? Am I just another one of these gods? Or am I the one and only God? Now, who do you think had the temerity to answer that question out of all the disciples? Do you think it was a 16-year-old kid, John? Or do you think it might have been Judas who would become the betrayer? I don't think so. We know who it is. But there's an important issue that we need to understand. Jesus is trying to clarify two issues in the minds of his disciples. He does so in order that they might become more effective in the world that they will inherit once he is gone. The first thing they must have crystallized in their mind is knowing who Jesus is. If we cannot identify who Jesus is, then we are no different than the lost around us. We must be completely sure of his identity, of who he is, Not only must we be certain about who he is, but we must be certain of knowing what Jesus did. The reason for this will become crystal clear next week as we look at the continuation of this text, especially in verse 22. His question, however, concerns their present knowledge of him at this moment in time, this snapshot in time. This is like one of those snap polls that they take before the presidential election, and it's still two years out. Who do you want for president? Who do you say that I am? They're still gathering information. Are they not about who Christ is? The disciples needed to be able to answer these simple diagnostic questions in order to be able to share his person with the world. Let me ask you. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what Jesus did? I don't believe that they understood at this moment in time that Jesus would die a substitutionary death in the place of all of mankind. I don't think they understood that. I don't think that they recognized that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to send a redeemer for all of mankind. No, Instead, they had a cultural understanding of who Jesus was, that he was the man who would come and lead them in victory over their great enemy, Rome. They saw Jesus, as much of the culture did, as a great prophet from the Old Testament. Now in verse 16, we have what many call Peter's confession of Jesus' identity. We see this is his view now, and it's developing. Notice in verse 16 that Jesus calls him Simon Peter. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His first response is a great one. The first portion of it is, you are the Christ. For the first time in the gospel, we have a direct affirmation of Christ's messiahship, of his person. 
Jesus asked this of all his disciples, but only one had the guts to speak up. Simon Peter offers this answer. Now, we know a bit about Simon Peter, that he had a brash personality, that he was outgoing, that he was the natural spokesman for the group of the disciples, whether that be good or bad. We can see that he is definite about who he thinks Jesus is, and he gives a correct identification that he is not only the Christ, but that he is the son of the living God. Now, how should we understand this very theological statement of Simon Peter? Is he affirming Jesus to be the savior of the world by this statement? The one who would die substitutionarily for the sin of all of mankind. I think not. He is simply affirming his belief at this moment in time that Jesus was the promised deliverer of Israel, the human predicted by the Old Testament prophets who would come and save Israel from bondage. Now, many Bible students, I believe, make a grave hermeneutical error here in this text by reading back the New Testament into the Gospels. They take historical truth that has not yet happened, and they read it back into the period of Jesus' life. Simon Peter is not affirming in any way, shape, or form that Jesus would be the Savior of the world. That cannot be per the Greek grammar. He calls Jesus ho Christos in Greek, translated the Christ into English. This is the equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew word for Messiah, literally meaning the, the anointed one. Now, that's not to say that Peter's positive confession here is worthless or wrong. It's unique to this moment in time. And it's not the first time Jesus has been acknowledged as the Messiah. Let me remind you, back in chapter 1 of the book of John, Nathaniel made a similar pronouncement to his own brother, Simon Peter, when he introduced him to Jesus, saying, This is the Son of God, the King of Israel. John chapter 1. Then in Matthew 14, as Jesus walks on the water, it stills the winds and the waves, the disciples respond, all of the disciples respond by saying, surely this is God's Son. Then once again, Simon Peter proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah in John chapter 6. You'll recall there that many of his disciples had left him, John 6, 6, 6. And Peter said to the Lord to a question about the disciples leaving, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, there it is. They've confessed his identity as the Christos, the Messiah, the Anointed One, many times. So what then is different in this text? It seems to me what's different here is that Jesus is asking the question of them rather than a spontaneous utterance after some great miracle that Jesus has just performed. This affirmation of Jesus' identity is thought out and informed since they've been with him now for an eye on to two years. And in this response, Peter affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God, however and whatever that means. In other words, he's recognizing, I believe, Jesus to be the anointed deliverer of Israel as predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Peter, as a representative of the Twelve, confesses Jesus to be the promised Messiah, King of Israel. It's noteworthy that this is so because Israel corporately as a nation, as I've argued continually in the past few weeks have rejected Christ as the Messiah King. It's noteworthy, it's important that only Matthew records the words found here labeling Jesus as the Son of the Living God. The other two Gospels who record this event, 
Mark and Luke do not include those words. I suspect the the adjective living is added here to contrast Jesus against the dead uh, gods of the grotto of Panius. Pagans worshipped dead gods. They were merely stone and metal idols. But Jesus was living, and the Jews worshipped a living God. Now, in verse 17, we see Jesus clarifies Peter's own, Simon Peter's own identity when he says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus addresses Simon as a Jewish man when he uses his Hebrew name. Simon means in Hebrew, listen, or he has heard. Simon is the English version of the Hebrew name Shimeon. The name Shimeon is from the root word in Hebrew from which the term Shammai comes from. As you might know, the Shammai is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Listen to what this begins with. There the Lord instructs the Jews to hear him saying, Hear, Shimeon, Shammai, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So when Jesus speaks his name, he is saying that this is the one who hears. The one who is the son of Jonah. Not the Jonah that you think of, but his father's name was Jonah. Peter knew that this was true because the God of heaven had revealed it to him. So, Jesus says, you will be blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, for you are a receiver of divine truth from the Father. God has blessed him because he listened and heard the truth and received it. Jesus is the teacher and Simon was his student. It was the practice of teachers during this day who had disciples like Jesus to bless their students when answering a question correctly. So Jesus pronounces here a blessing upon Peter, for, upon Peter, Simon Peter, for having listened, understood, and recognized the truth that all of Israel had missed. Now in verse 18, we have one of the most important and yet controversial and misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. Here, Jesus' response to Simon Peter's confession continues when he says, I ask, I also, excuse me, I also say to you that you are Peter. You're not just Simon Barjona, but you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I'd like you to look behind me on the screen and tell me what you see. A horse. Are you sure? You sure that's a picture of a horse? Yes, indeed. It does look like a horse, does it not? But how do you know it's a horse? What can you do with a horse? You can get on a ride for transportation and it will take you to places that you need and want to go, right? Now look at the picture behind me on the screen. What is that? That's, that's the car of my fantasies. What is it? It's a car, right? What can a car be used for? For transportation. To get you where you want to go and do the things that you need to do, right? Now let me ask you a deeper question. Is a horse a car the same thing? No, that's just silly, isn't it? A horse is a horse and a car is a car, of course. Right? Is this too simplistic for this crowd? Just wait. Keep that in the back of your mind. There's an awesome wordplay first that I'd like to point out to you in this text as we see the nuances in Greek that you cannot see in English. But keep in mind the horse and the car, okay? Jesus is making a point when he uses the name Peter along with the term 
rock. Notice Jesus changes the name, the Hebrew name of Peter, and he now uses the Greek name of Simon, now uses the Greek name Peter. No longer is he the one who listens, but he, well, he does like to talk, doesn't he? Peter, yeah. Now he's the one who is a Petros. That's what Peter means. Petros in Greek. It's descriptive of a small rock. As you know, Jesus loves to use object lessons when he teaches, and I believe he is doing so here. Just as he taught about who he is, his identity, by bringing them to Panius, he now, I believe, though it doesn't say in the text, he reaches down and he picks up a small boulder that has come loose from the giant mountain that they are walking by. And he picks that up while he looks at Mount Hermon and he says to Peter, you are Peter, a tiny rock, a small rock. You're just a small piece of that mountain that will become my people. Again, just imagine Jesus gesturing to Mount Hermon as he says, upon this rock I will build my people. Now more more of that in just a minute. But first you need to understand that the Greek word Peter, Petros, is a feminine noun. Okay? And the word rock for mountain is a male uh, Greek word. They come from the same root, they sound similar, but grammatically they cannot be linked together. Why not? They are of two different genders. When Sue's mother was alive with us a few weeks ago, after she had her stroke, she would refer to Sue as him. Is him home yet? It's odd, isn't it? And she would often refer to me as her. And you'd have to think twice about what she was trying to communicate. She had gotten her, through the stroke, genders mixed up. No Jew would have connected Peter and upon this rock together. That's bad hermeneutics that you will hear preached all over this country. But no Jew, because he knew his Greek, would have ever connected a male and a female. The only people that are nuts enough to do that are Americans. (laughs) Confusion of genders would have never happened in the Greek language. The disciples would never have in a million years seen this as Peter being a reference to upon this rock shall I build my people. More on that in just a moment. Nor would they have ever in a million years viewed Peter, big mouth, always getting in trouble, as superior to themselves. Remember what they do? They argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. If they thought it was going to be Peter, they would have said, oh, well, of course, Peter's going to be the greatest, <laughs> and then maybe me. But they didn't do that, did they? When Jesus speaks of the foundation upon which his people, more on that in just a minute, will be built, he's speaking of himself. So the question that has been so controversial and caused so much trouble, and people continue to ask, who or what is this rock upon my people will be built? The grammar makes it crystal clear. It's not Peter. Peter is not the first pope. Now more to what's going on here in, in the grammar and the way this is constructed. You'll notice that Jesus' answer He's juxtaposing his answer to Peter's answer. Okay? When Jesus says, I tell, whoa, when I tell you, I tell you are Peter, it's parallel to Peter's declaration that he said, you are the Christ. I tell you Peter, and he said, you are the Christ. These are juxtaposed one with the other. And he's saying, you are a small rock, and this is a huge mountain in comparison. So Jesus is stating that he's building my people, not on Peter, but on the mountain. 
Now, what I'm about to share with you, no other pastor would probably ever tell you. So if you want to pick up small rocks outside and stone me when the service is over, that's okay. Okay? But no other pastor will probably tell you this because they're chicken. Or they just don't know it. Or they don't believe it. The translation that you have in your English Bible upon this rock, I will build my, is totally erroneous. Completely wrong. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this text, twisted it into their errant doctrine that obviously Peter was the first post. This dishonors the word of God. Peter is not the mountain upon which my people is built. Jesus is. And as I've demonstrated from the Greek words, that can't be because of the two different genders. Jesus is never saying upon this will I build my church. That was impossible. He's addressing 12 Jews living under the law of Moses. They're expecting a Jewish Messiah and they've identified Jesus as that Messiah who would defeat their enemy and establish the Davidic kingdom. Not a church. The word used here in English, in your English Bible, is church. But in the Greek text, it's, it's ecclesia. Every Jew understood and knew what that word meant. When you look at a horse, do you see a horse or a car? When you look at a car, do you see a horse? When you look at the word ecclesia, they would never have seen a church. It did not exist. The Greek word, ecclesia, has a historical background to it. Etymologically. Wow. Say that ten times. Etymologically, ecclesia meant an assembly of Greek citizens that would gather together in a city-state in the democratic process of making choices. In fact, we find it exactly that way used in the book of Acts when the translators forgot to translate it as church. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 32 39 and 41, it's used in that exact way when it says this. Some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another for the assembly. There it is, the word ecclesia. They don't translate it as church. Some were in confusion and the majority didn't know for what cause they had come together. And a few verses later. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled by the local assembly. Ecclesia, not church. Assembly. Finally, two verses after that. And they were saying this, and he dismissed the assembly. Not church. Ecclesia. In the Old Testament translation into Greek, the Septuagint, the LXX, Ecclesia is found again and again used there of the Jewish people gathering together, and it is called an ecclesia, an assembly of people. What is happening here is that the translators have begun to read into the Gospel of Matthew a post-Pentecostal definition of the word ecclesia. But it would never have been used nor understood that way by any pious Jew. The twelve would never have viewed themselves as an extension of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They were Jewish followers. In fact, after Pentecost, they were called, anybody know? The Way. Not Christians, not till much later. They were called The Way. And in fact, they met at the Temple Mount of the Jews for several years after the formation of Jesus' people, called The Way. The term ecclesia can be used in any ga- for any gathering of people that are called for a special purpose. But it would never have in a million years been called a church. Do you know why? Anybody know why? The word church wasn't even invented until almost 1600. Let that sink in for a minute. Why would you translate a Greek word for a word from 1600 years later? That doesn't make any sense, does it? 
Ecclesia always meant an assembly. The first appearance of the word church in the English in an English translation is in the KJV, the authorized version. The King James Bible. More on that in a minute. But let me give you the dagger of the usage of the word church. You see, I'm going to tell you why that's important in just a minute. Just a few chapters later in Matthew, there's another use. There's only two uses in the book of Matthew. The second use is in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. The second one shows just how silly it is to insert that word in this text, and erroneous. Jesus uses the word ecclesia, not of the future church, but of his people that would be an assembly brought together. Here in verse 17 of chapter 18, we read him saying, If a brother refuses to listen to them, tell it to thee. What does your say? The word ecclesia is there. That would be assembly, not church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Why would Jesus say that when the church is now filled with Gentiles and tax gatherers. That's what you are. Tax givers. Don't you see the problem with this? Most Christians never put on their thinking cap. Why would Jesus have said this? Jews hated Gentiles and tax gatherers. They were outcasts. Now Jesus tells a future church to treat sinners like Gentiles and tax gatherers, so just to treat them like they are, right? No. He was speaking to Jews under the law who treated those who departed from Israel as Gentiles. So that word church is erroneous and cannot be what Jesus meant. Remember, he's speaking to Jews in a Jewish context. Now, this wicked gets a bit stickier here because what I'm going to tell you, there's a reason for this. The Reformed Covenant adherents argue that Israel and the church are one and the same. So they have no problem doing this. They see David as being part of the church. Moses is being part of the church. Abraham started the church, not the Jewish religion. We're all one and the same. The promises in the Old Testament to the Jews are really to the church today. You see the issue there, the problem? Some real problems with that. I don't have time to go into them. But that simply cannot be true. The church only came into being after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It was formed following his ascension when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people at Pentecost. Now, this is exactly why I am a dispensationalist. This is the nail in the coffin to the argument. The word church does not exist in this text. It's not found even until the late 1500s, 1611. It was an English word that was used because it had a purpose under the authorization of the translation of the Bible by King James. As you know, in 1611, uh, there were other Bibles that had been written beforehand. The first that was translated from the Greek into English into English was in 1526. The first English Bible ever. You need to understand the, the history here. 1526, okay? The Oxford Dictionary, which you see behind me, is the origination of the word church. The Old English, now you're going to have to follow this, it gets a little bit, gets a little bit convoluted, okay? Is the word circe, C-I-R-I-C-E or C-I-R-C-E. Then in Middle English it became Cherokee, 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 and finally it became Churchy. Okay? Clearly, we get our word for this group of people gathered together from the Old English and the Scots had the word Kirk. Sounds like church, doesn't it? 
And those referred to places of cultic worship. All of those words. Look at the word carefully. It's circle. Think of Stonehenge. What is Stonehenge? A circle. The word church comes from the place of worship of cultic religions like Druidism. Is that what you're doing here? Do you think that's a proper word to translate the, the term in Greek, ecclesia? I think not. As I said, the first Bible to really translate it wholly that way was the KJV. To take ecclesia, and instead of understanding it as congregation, they inserted the word church. Up to that time, it had never been done in an English text. Tyndale wrote the first Bible from Greek to English in 1526. He used the word congregation. The Coverdale Bible of 1535 translated the word ecclesiastical congregation. The Matthew Bible of 1537 used the congregation, not church. The Great Bible of 1539 used the word congregation, not church. It wasn't, uh, and the Bishop Bible in 1568 used the word congregation and church. It wasn't until 1611 that the Geneva Bible and the KJV both used the old English understanding of Kirk, Krish, circle, in place of the word Ecclesiastes. All other translations used congregation. Why? King James paid 54 scholars by, by, paid 54 scholars guided by 15 different edicts in their translation process to make the authorized version. One of James's edicts to them, the translators, was that the word church must be used in the place of congregation, in the place of ecclesia. Why would King James be so adamant about this? Well, most people trace it back to the word circle. Circle. One detail that is often not discussed in historical understanding of James is that before he was the king of England, he was James VI, the king of Scotland, the only son of the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots. In Scotland, James was a founding member and patron of the secret society called the Masons. So when he had the King James Version of the Bible translated, he liked circle because that was the symbol of Freemasons. And it was included into the Bible that is reverenced and many people today think is authoritative in their life and it's actually erroneous and an affront to what the Scripture teaches. A church is not a building. A church is not even an appropriate term to use. We should call ourselves a congregation of the righteous, a gathering of his people. Ecclesia is a proper way to understand ourselves, and congregation is the right way to interpret it. The building of a congregation is what Jesus is speaking of, those who believe in this text. Acts describes this process in chapter 2, verse 46, saying this, Day by day, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord was building the congregation. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were saved. Remember, 3,000 people were saved? That's the first new reality that Jesus was teaching his disciples. That the congregation of believers would grow. The second one is that they would become a threat to the old community called Judaism. And there would be a battle that would ensue. So he's building the congregation and there's going to be battling with the old community. Imagine you are one of the twelve listening to Jesus as he says, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation. And what happens after Pentecost? Thousands of people get saved. He's building his people, right? And then what happens? Trouble comes. The Jews try to squash them. They start killing Christians. Stephen, the first martyr. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's the second, the battling that the congregations go through. That's another can of worms, is it not? 
What does that mean, the gates of Hades? What does that refer to? Hermeneutics, again, helps us understand this. We don't have any concept of a gate. And in this time period, gates were essential to cities. It's where the elders met. It's where the business was contracted, right? If you wanted to get into the city, you had to go through a gate. It's where the, all the authority and the power of the city resided. It was like our city hall and our courthouse all wrapped up. Now, Hades, as you know, is the place of the dead. We get great help in understanding this, and I know this is going on a little bit long, but I hope this helps you understand this important verse. In Luke chapter 16, there's some dead guys talking to one another. Do you remember? It's Lazarus talking to a rich man. They're in two different places. They're in a, one, one man's in a place called Abraham's bosom, or paradise, and another one is in Hades, or Sheol in Hebrew. These are containment places. There is no heaven and there is no hell at this, pl- at this point in time. Hope you realize that. When people died, the believers went to Abraham's bosom, or paradise. When Jesus died, where did he go? Today you will be with me in paradise. Where did the lost go? They went to Sheol or Hades, the place of the dead. So when he speaks here of the gates of Hades, he's talking about a concept they were well aware of. It's spoken of all over the Old Testament. The gates of the dead is the place where the dead entered into. At the coming of the Lord Jesus, when he returns for his congregation, (laughs) he will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and all the dead will be raised. Death cannot prevail against Christ and the congregation of the righteous. The gates of Hades cannot overcome them. The people of the Lord are not at the mercy of physical death for the Lord. When he resurrects them, it's unto life, and the gates of hell cannot keep them in. Now, for those who believe, they will be saved from the power of sin, death, and the grave. The gates of Hades, if you will. It has no power over the grace of God, because Christ holds them in his grip. In a sense, when Christ went down to Hades, he stormed the gates of Hades to deliver the captives from death. Now, most Bible scholars do not believe this. I uniquely believe this. But based on a text from the Gospels, I believe that the Old Testament saints, those who were saved, Moses and Abraham and Adam and so on, were raised at the moment that Christ came out of the grave because in a text in Matthew, which we will come to later on, it says all of the graves in Jerusalem were opened. I believe they were translated to heaven into his presence at that time. But those in Hades remained in that containment place. Now, he delivers from paradise, as I said, to the heavenly abode. Paul tells us this, too, in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, when he says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, and through death he might render powerless him who has power over death, that is the devil, and might deliver them through the fear of death and were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ has freed us from death. The gates of hell have no power over us. He saved us from sin, death, and the grave. Satan can never overpower us, keeping us trapped in death. Now in verse 19, Jesus says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
The word you there is singular, but he says this again in a few chapters, and it's plural, so he's speaking to all the disciples. I will give you the keys of, king, the, keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say, what in the world does that mean? Do you have any idea what that means? Oh, my goodness. All these ignomatic statements. Mysteries, impossible done. No, they can be understood. You just have to have a right hermeneutic. You have to interpret the Bible correctly. Otherwise, these things just become mysteries which they build false doctrine upon. Jesus is not giving Peter as the first pope the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose, to make choices as he would, and that whatever he chooses will be the same in heaven. That's not what's going on here. This binding and loosing were common words used by Jewish rabbis. Yes, my dear, by the rabbis. Who would speak of this is allowed and this is not allowed. This can happen and that can't happen. This is forbidden, but this is okay. Some have suggested this refers to the legislative leaders in the early congregation. I almost said church. May it never be. What shall be bound, what shall be loosed. What does that mean? The keys were given to all of the disciples that they could bind and loose. What does that mean? I believe the keys that God gives the disciples are the keys of mercy, grace, and the forgiveness of God. Peter first used these keys to unlock, to unloosen, to unbind, unbound those that were entrapped in false doctrine. You'll recall in, in Acts chapter 2 that many Jews of Samaria were saved. Later on, the keys were used by Paul to open and unlock the doors for Gentiles when Cornelius was saved. And then in chapter 8, Jews were saved. He uses these keys of the grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God to unbind those, to loose those who were once bound. We have an example of this in the book of Acts when the when the disciples, now apostles, get together at what is called the Jerusalem Council, and they say that Gentiles can come into the church and be part of the body of Christ. Loosing and binding. Nowhere is it ever stated that some choice a man on earth makes must be obeyed by God in heaven. The congregation of God's people is always charged with obeying the will of God, which is made in the heavens above. In no way does the congregation get their will done in heaven. God's not obeying something some man says. So, another way it's possible to understand this statement of what are the keys of the kingdom (coughs) is that all servants at this time who served a household or who served in the royal household or who served in the temple were given keys to unlock doors. Today we use keys to unlock doors, right? We just keep our borders wide open, but we lock our doors at home, right? Peter was given the privilege of opening the door to the congregation because he has the keys to the truth of grace, mercy, and the righteousness of God, the freedom that God gives to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 20, the end of this, And you're all saying, Amen. Praise God, he's at the end. Well, I'd just be glad I didn't say we're getting near the end. Now we're at the end, all right? Verse 20. There Jesus warns the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the, not Savior, Christ, the promised Messiah. Again, another puzzling statement, right? Why would Jesus tell his disciples, who just recognized who he is, they've just gotten his identity, right? Is he, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, let's go on and tell every Jew that we can meet on the road, everywhere we can go, that this is Jesus, is the answer. Don't tell anybody. Another puzzling statement. Why? I believe Jesus did not want the crowds trying to establish him by force as the king of Israel. Remember they wanted to do that in the past? 
So what does this mean to us today? How can we apply these truths to our life? Well, first of all, we should understand that Jesus is not just a good man, that Jesus is not just a great teacher, and that he's not just a miracle worker. No, he is the savior of the world who died for every and all men. You know, Reformed theologians do not believe that. Do you believe Jesus died for every soul that's ever lived? I do. You know, Reformed covenantalists don't believe that. They believe that Jesus died only for the elect. And that all those other people are destined, they can't do anything about it, they're on their way to hell and destruction. I don't believe that. I believe God's mercy is available to anyone who will trust in him. Jesus died for the whole world. He paid the penalty for every man, woman, and child ever born. His sacrifice was more than enough to pay for the sins of everyone. Therefore, we must know who he is. We must know clearly who he is and what he did in order to be an effective disciple. And that's why he blessed Peter. Peter was able to answer the important question correctly. Can you? If I was to ask you today, if you were to die right now, sitting in that pew and fall over dead, and you stood in the presence of God, and he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you answer? See, you need to be able to identify who he is, know who he is and what he did. I believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world who died for my sins by dying on the cross of Calvary and giving me eternal life for my belief and trust in him alone. Therefore, we must know who he is and what he did. Peter was able to answer those questions. Lastly, We must understand that we are not a church. We are a congregation of the righteous. Not because we're good, but because he declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ which is applied to us. And as a congregation of believers, we hold the keys of the kingdom. You and I are possessors of the king. We know the grace, the mercy of God. And we can unlock the doors through the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ to others by an effective testimony, an effective witness. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he did for people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Matthew helping us to understand the context in which all of this took place. What great truths, Lord, you're revealing to us. Help us to understand them, apply them, accept them, and love them. Despite what others in Christendom might say, Lord, help us to understand these truths and live by them. Make us effective disciples of the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. Help us to unlock doors for our neighbors, for our families, for our friends, for our co-workers. Help us, Lord, to share the keys of the kingdom with the lost, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.